There's a famous song. It's in a Broadway musical. It begins with these words. It says, let us start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. And if you're familiar with the sound of music, you'll know that's the opening lines of what's called the Do-Re-Mi song. It gives us a pretty good strategy for any time that we need to deal with something that can be a very emotional, challenging issue. So we're going to start at the beginning of God's Word today. And we find in the very first verse, it says, In the beginning God, what? Created the heaven and the earth. It's important because it emphasizes everything that existed in Genesis chapter 1 was created by God specifically. Indeed, he not only said it was good, he said it was very good. And it, it's a passage that helps us to answer three questions that all of us at some point or another will ask. We will ask the following questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? The book of Genesis answers the first one of those very clearly. It, it describes it in the six days of creation. It's sometimes called the creation narrative. Just to give us an idea, on the first day, God separates the light from the darkness. On the second day, he separates the sky from the water. On the third day, he separates the land from the water. And on the fourth day, it says God set the stars in the sky. A very deliberate act. He set them in the sky. On the fifth day, he creates the fish and the birds. On the sixth day, he creates what we would call the land animals. But also on that sixth day, in what you could call the crowning act of creation, God creates man. And this is where our journey is going to begin together this morning, in verse 26 to 28. Now the verses leading up to that passage deserve careful attention because they do explain what God intended from the beginning. So I'm going to restate that passage, but in this case, from I call it the classic translation, it's the King James translation. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Very Trinitarian sounding language. But just a couple of verses later, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And if we look at the word image, the word image, it comes from a Hebrew word that tells us that man is created for the purpose of knowing God. Now the word salem also can mean statue. A statue is an image of whatever it is that it is portraying. In this sense, we're given the title. We are the image bearers of God here on the earth. So what does this mean in a, a practical sense? Well, I think that being created in the image of God tells us several things. The first of which is that we're not the same as the animals. We're not the same as the animals. Many of you know that we have a dog. If you've ever walked anywhere within about a half a mile of the manse, you've probably heard her barking. And we love Pepper. And we have a cat, Scamper, and we love Scamper. But our pets actually are not made in the image of God. They're made by God, but they're not his image bearers in the same way. Now, God has given us dominion over them, and as such, we have responsibility for them to care for our pets. They bring us companionship and affection in ways that many people don't understand. If they're not a dog person or a cat person, they don't totally get it. 
And yet, even with the wonderful bond we have with the animals, there is a difference between humans and all other creatures, and it at least partially relates to this issue of us being God's image bearers here on the earth. So that brings us to the second point here. Being created in the image of God enables us to know God personally. We have this ability to know him and a desire to know him more. So far as we can determine, only humans have this level of awareness. Years ago, I asked my father about this, and I always remembered the answer he gave me. He said, well, think of it this way. Your dog at the time was Penny. Penny was a kind of a Sheltie, kind of something of a miniature collie. And he said, Penny knows a lot of things. But he said, you, you can know that you know. And that's an important distinction. That always stuck with me. I thought Dad had an interesting point. It's not that we don't have a great affection and obviously great responsibility to care for the animals that live with us, but it does mean the Bible tells us being created in God's image that we have an ability to know him in ways the animals do not. Thirdly, the image of God imparts, let's call it true significance to every individual, and that significance is apart from their circumstances. In plain language, it means that every one of us is born in God's image, and this is regardless of our skin color, our nationality, our gender, our age, our physical limitations. In that sense, everybody who lives in the Latino area, young or old, male or female, are all made in God's image. Nobody can take that away from you. And everyone matters to God because his image is in each person. For that matter, his love for us lasts from the moment of conception all the way through the moment that we take our, our last breath. So those are some foundational things that we need to use as a backdrop because it starts to bring us to our primary focus this morning, which is, comes in verse 27. Because the image of God actually teaches us what God designed marriage to be about. In verse 27, it's interesting that it uses the word created three times just in that single verse. Three different times. And it's emphasizing the unique thing that God was doing in creating humans as male and female. And we find this basic pattern of life established. Humanity is forever divided into two groups. That's why verse 27 presents us as male and female, both bearing the image of God. And in this, there is equality, but there is also a crucial difference. It impacts how we should properly relate to one another, but it also teaches us something that we need each other. And that brings us to the fifth thing that the image of God tells us, a key purpose that the Bible gives us for God's design of marriage. Certainly, Companionship and being a helpmate to one another is in that formula. But it also states that we're to be, quote, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And verse 27 says the way that is supposed to happen is men and women together in marriage, bringing forth children with God's blessing. In other words, marriage is for more than procreation, but it obviously is also for that purpose. And yes, there are situations in which a combination of factors, medical and otherwise, make that very difficult. And for couples who face that challenge of infertility, churches need to have great compassion and sensitivity 
Terry and I have been on the receiving end of the lack of compassion and sensitivity years ago, and that should not be. But after Genesis chapter 1, in chapter 2, it now focuses in on the sixth day of creation. And what we see is Adam alone in the garden, and God says, this is not good for him to be alone. It's in verse 18. Adam needs a companion. So God creates what the Bible calls a a helpmate that's suitable for him. And it's interesting because the Hebrew word that's translated as helpmate means, and I'll quote it here, one who comes alongside to complete what is lacking. One who comes alongside to complete what is lacking. Let's look at Genesis 2, verse 20 to 24. For Adam there was not found a helpmate for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from Adam, from that he made a woman and brought her unto Adam. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now we shouldn't miss the significance, the significance of that last phrase. Adam first sees Eve, and he sees someone who is like him, but also different. Equal, but not identical. And we may find then in the very next verse what could be the most important passage in Scripture relating to God's design of us as male and female. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cling cling to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This is God's purpose of gender in his design. In God's creation, there is male and there is female, but Scripture doesn't offer us any other definition. It's God's design for our future, but also for his purposes. Now, in chapter 3, we come to the entrance of sin into the world. And I'll admit I've spent a lot of time in the last four weeks talking about the entrance of sin into the world. So we know the story well. We can summarize it by saying the serpent tempts Eve and deceives her. She takes the fruit and eats it. She gives Adam the fruit and he eats it. And thus, sin enters the human race, as we talked about last week. That's why we have all the problems that we have in the world. And that's why the reality is that all of us eventually die. Both of them participated in the act of disobedience. Essentially, they didn't believe what God said. Or they denied that he even said it. Eve sins first, but it's Adam God holds responsible. That's an interesting one. Because Adam is the spiritual leader of that marriage. Both suffer the consequences of their disobedience. Both are cast out of the Garden of Eden. But there's one other vital aspect in chapter 3. God pronounces judgment on the serpent, but he adds a note of hope. A note of hope. It's in verse 15. The classic translation, it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's a passage that many people memorize, but they're always a little unsure about what does that mean. Well, in plain language, God says to the serpent, Satan, There will be war between you and the woman and between your seed and her offspring. By him your head will be crushed 
and by you his heel will be wounded. But who is this him who's going to crush the serpent's head, Satan's head? Who is this? Well, this him refers to the eventual offspring of Eve's eventual descendant, Mary, who will bring forth the promised Messiah, who will bring salvation to the world. Though he will not be born until centuries later, this promise points to the coming of Christ, the seed of the woman, who through his death and resurrection will defeat Satan and defeat his power over the world. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, it's the first gospel promise. John Piper, longtime pastor in Minneapolis, puts it this way. He says, please notice how it's the woman, Eve, who gives birth through her descendant, Mary, to the man, Jesus, who brings salvation. In this picture that's described, the design of God's creation remains pretty obvious. The man and the woman are together in God's plan from the beginning. This is why there is no substitute for God's design of gender in God's plan. Now you might say, well, that's the Old Testament, Jim. And I'll say, yes, it is. So let's look at the New Testament. Matthew 1, verse 18 to 25. It describes the birth of Christ through the conception of the Holy Spirit. I actually spoke specifically on that passage back during the sequence leading up to Christmas. It's an event that took place just as Isaiah had prophesied 700 years earlier in its fulfilling the promise back in Genesis 3.15. But there is this this parallel, this parallel between creation and redemption. Here is the parallel. From the man, Adam, comes the woman, Eve, taking Adam's rib. Centuries later, from the woman, Mary, comes the man, Jesus. Fully human while still fully God, the Messiah who brings salvation to all who believe. It is not the man alone or the woman alone or two men or two women but one man and one woman together who bring about God's plan of salvation. Now today, we know there is a debate. People will claim that Jesus really didn't address this issue. I think they're quite mistaken. The passages that we've talked about very openly state that marriage, and therefore all biblically endorsed aspects of marriage, are between one man and one woman within a marriage relationship. And for this reason, the efforts today to try to redefine marriage are not biblical because God designed the human race so that this is the fundamental relationship between people. I know that doesn't earn me any brownie points today, but I'm, as a minister of the gospel, I am bound by what scripture says, not by what perhaps some very sincere individuals want it to say. Let's look at another passage, Ephesians 5. Classic New Testament passage on marriage. It's the reminder for husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. But there's an additional phrase in there. And gave himself for it. It describes marriage as the picture of the love that exists between Christ and his church. It means that God has something in mind for marriage that goes well beyond just our own wishes. Christian marriage is a, is a divine lesson through which we see something about the nature of Christ and his love for all who believe. So what I'm really trying to get at is that God's design of gender is not about us. It's about God. And when we try to redefine it, we're making the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. 
who are trying to deny what God has said. This is why the Bible teaches us about God's design of male and female, and here it is. This is why the concept of same-sex marriage is not a picture of Christ and the church. God's design of gender displays this profound spiritual truth. The Bible does not give a hint or even a suggestion that any other concept of gender or of marriage is acceptable to God. This is why that male-female is that male-female relationship is so fundamental to not only our existence but also God's plan. It starts in Genesis, it continues through Revelation. It is not just a small side issue that we can debate. It's part of the very fiber of Holy Scripture. Until we can grasp and accept this matter, we don't properly understand the act of creation. But we also need to be reminded of a few other things. We need to understand that the Bible is not like a cafeteria where we can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. God doesn't offer his word to us on that basis. His word is not a buffet. We can't believe the things we like and ignore the things that we don't like. He established the basis of marriage on the sixth day of creation. When we vary from that, we're denying God's very design. From God's viewpoint, same-sex marriage isn't marriage. It may be a legal partnership, because individual states do make those laws, but it is not marriage. In 2015, the Supreme Court Obergefell decision was wrong because Holy Scripture says that it was wrong. Now, all that having been said, those of you that come from very conservative backgrounds right now are wanting to cheer what I've said, and those of you from more progressive backgrounds are uncomfortable, even almost thinking that I'm being cruel. So let's understand this matter of compassion on an issue like this, and a sense of love for people who struggle with it. They personally may not struggle with it, but there's someone that they know, who they care about, who struggles with it. We need to remember something. All people were created in God's image. All are fallen sinners. And with the debate on the matter of genders today, we can't lose sight of this reality. We live in a fallen world. Without God's grace, we all stand condemned. We do not approve of someone else's sin, but we don't hate the person who struggles with that sin. Because each of us struggle with our own sins, and far too often, and I'll repeat that, far too often, we become so focused on someone else's sin that we totally ignore our own. John 1.18, actually 1 John 1.18, says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So we need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. So a couple of key questions that may come into your mind right now. The first question, you would say, well, is it a sin to pursue an attraction between two people of the same gender? Well, I would say yes. Is it a sin to try to redefine what the Bible says about these matters? I would say yes. But, well, it is true we should not deny that these things are sin. Let's also not deny that Christ's blood is sufficient for all sins when we face them and repent from them. You and I stand condemned because of our own sin. Outside of Christ's blood, I am under the judgment of God. And our sins may not be exactly the same as what we're addressing today, but we're all sinners nonetheless. We, we can't create this new super sin category 
that even Christ's blood is not capable of atoning for. The answer to any and all sin is repenting and turning from it. And for people on all of the abuses of the genders, because we need to be honest, heterosexual relationships have terrible levels of sin and abuse of God's design when they're misused. I think we all know that. It brings me to the final point this morning. We should not deny that any sin is in fact sin. We need to turn from it and we need to stop the tendency to try and turn the Bible essentially into a Burger King commercial where we want to have it our way. Instead, we need to grab hold of the very Son of God who loves you, who died for you, and who died for me. The Holy Spirit calls us to repent and turn from any of our sin. When we trust in Christ and place our faith in him, he gives us the power to resist, including any desire we might have to try and deny or redefine what I would say Scripture very clearly says. Now, some people will say, well, Jim, it's about love, and love wins. That's what they will say. My response to that is the most loving thing we can do to someone is tell them the truth about matters such as this. But to do so in a way that we would want to be told if the situation were reversed. Now, others will say their own personal liberty is more important than what anyone else says or thinks. They would even go so far as to claim that it's more important than Scripture. We need to be reminded that the concept of individual liberty must also include the responsibility that comes with it. And this is where godly compassion comes in. This is why there isn't room for the kind of spiked and downright hate speak that some Christians dispense on this issue, as challenging as it might be. We are to love the sinner, but that does not mean that we accept or approve the sin. And we should take that approach because this is how Jesus deals with you and me. Because we too are sinners. Maybe not with this particular sin, but with more than enough to deal with in our own life. We love the people, but that does not mean we affirm or approve of their choices. You know, this is such a, a sensitive topic, and yet it is such an issue in our society today. I've not spoken about it before. I felt compelled to address it with you today. Now, I know some people might say the church should not get involved in political issues. But friends, this is a theological issue at its core. The public debate might be happening in a legal and a political forum, but we have to understand this is about God's word and God's design. And I, I hope that it brings you a better understanding of why we should believe what we should believe on this issue. And if my words have troubled you today, if you think I'm too hard on this issue, or possibly if you think I'm too soft on this issue, I ask you, sleep on your concerns. Pray on it. And then if you really are still troubled tomorrow morning, send a text message to the church's phone number. And then we can set an appointment to talk in person because this, if you're troubled with something with this, this is not a phone conversation item. I ask that you let the Holy Spirit speak to you about this. We should love the sinner, but not approve of the sin. That's how God deals with us. With that in mind, 
Will you please pray with me? Lord, this is such a sensitive topic. It's, it's hard to see through all the rocks because there's so much rock throwing and there's so much emotion. Help us, Lord, to ask the question, what does Scripture say? Not what do we want it to say and not what we wish it said and not what we can try to redefine it to say. But once we are able to face that, Lord, help us to truly have compassionate hearts that reach out to and minister to people who are your image bearers. And Lord, in our own emotions about this, because of people that we know who may wrestle with this issue, we pray for them, Lord. We pray that you will guide them and be with them, that our ongoing conversation will be honoring to you. But in all things, Lord, we ask that you would help us Help us to just recognize that you are in charge of all things and that you will guide us as we walk through the, the rock-strewn minefield of such a sensitive topic. I pray for the members of First Union Church, and I pray, Lord, for everybody in northern Michigan who wrestles so deeply with this issue. May your grace abound, and where appropriate, may your conviction correct and guide all of us May it be to your honor and glory. I ask this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.